Psalm 134. I'm bringing you greetings from New Hyde Park Baptist Church in Long Island, New York. I know that seems like a world away from here in some ways when you go through the city, but greetings from the saints who are there. It is a delight to be here and worshiping with all of you here at Maranatha Grace. So I know we read this particular psalm, but I just want to read it again and pray again, and then we'll dive into this psalm. Psalm 134, this is God's word once again. Come. Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Just pray again. Father, we're seeking you today, and we thank you that you indeed are the maker of heaven and earth. And we pray that you would draw our hearts, that you would just rivet our hearts to you this morning, that the Spirit of God would be at work in us through these words, through this inspired scripture. And we do pray that you would bless us, even us, O Lord, in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Are you ready for heaven? I was talking to someone just recently, and they said, I'm ready to go home. And they didn't mean home to their neighborhood. They meant, I'm I'm weary of life. Now, when I ask you that question, are you ready for heaven? This morning, I don't mean, are you just weary of life? Are you just ready to have it all be done with and in Christ to return? There's something healthy about that. What I mean is this. Are you ready for the activity of heaven? A.W. Tozier said, any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. That's what we're going to be doing forever, worshiping. If you think about it, some of the activities, important Christian activities we engage in, evangelism, missions, we won't be doing those things forever. We will be worshiping forever our glorious Lord. And this psalm brings us into the theme of true worship. So that's the theme we'll consider from this particular psalm. True worship. God created us for worship And we don't have to wait for heaven. We shouldn't wait for heaven. Rather, what God created us to be, worshiping people, he longs for that in the here and now. And we long for that in the here and now. So our our worship now, to put it in one sense, is a kind of preparation for heaven. But it's a joyful preparation for heaven because it's who we were made to be, worshipers. This psalm that we just looked at and read, we'll be considering today, Psalm 134, It stands at the end of a group of 15 psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. So if you just look down in your Bibles, beginning there, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, all those psalms, under the psalm number, there's a little title there. And it says, a psalm of ascent. It's like, okay, well, what are we ascending to? According to Jewish tradition, these particular psalms were sung by the people of Israel as they were ascending to Jerusalem for 
different yearly festivals of worship. And it's appropriate if they're going with these songs on their lips, the very last psalm of this collection within the Psalter, these psalms of ascent, the very last one deals with worship. If you look there in the psalm, you see blessings to the Lord, you see servants of the Lord, you see people in the house of the Lord, you see lifted hands to the Lord. This is all about worship. And when we engage in worship, as this psalm brings us into, we're engaging in the activity that occupies eternity. I've got five points this morning. It's three verses, but I've got five points. I'm a pastor. We're really good at that. I don't know what to tell you. But I'll give you those five points right up front, and then we'll, we'll move through these. Number one, the object of worship. Number two, the people of worship. Three, the time of worship. Four, the place of worship. And then five, the expectation of worship. So we'll be working through those points this morning, beginning with the object of worship. This psalm brings us to the Lord. His name is repeated over and over in this psalm. Look again, verse number one, come bless the Lord. You servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Verse number two, bless the Lord. Verse number three, may the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He's the object of worship. The great and all-satisfying object of worship. Sometimes when people think about worship, they think about, boy, I, I hope the chairs are comfortable. I hope the musicians do a great job. Musicians did do a great job today, by the way. Thank you for serving us. I hope I see my friends there. I hope, and our minds run to kind of some of those circumstances of worship, but those things are not nearly as important as the object of worship, who we're gathering to worship. Sometimes people, when they think about worship, their minds first rush to Am I prepared for worship? How do I feel about worship? How did I leave feeling about worship? Is my faith growing? Is my faith shrinking? And they first look inside themselves. Now, those are, those are important questions. Those are not irrelevant questions. Um, those are certainly more important questions than are the chairs comfortable? But even those questions are not nearly as important as the object of worship. If we are truly worshiping the one living God, if we're doing that distractedly or, or kind of half-heartedly, that's not ideal. But if we're wholeheartedly engaged and joyfully celebrating Baal, well, obviously that's not, that, that can't be at all right. So the very first thing that God calls us to is to consider the object, the who. Here in this psalm, it uses the name Lord. And if you look in your Bibles there, you'll see that it's written in all capital letters each time it appears, kind of small caps. That is the translator's way of telling us that this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It's a specific name for Him. If we're going to bring ourselves to the great object of worship, we need to know who he is. 
gain to know what he's like. How easy it is sometimes for us to engage with family or friends because we know them. How hard it is for us to engage with the Lord if we don't really know who he is. And in the Old Testament culture in the Bible times, often a person's name revealed something very important about their character, who they are. And there's so much we could say about this name, Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, but just bring out one idea for us today. Yahweh is the God who is faithful to keep his covenant promises. When he first reveals this name, Lord, all caps, to Moses, he reveals that name to Moses when the people of Israel are in slavery in Egypt, but God hears their cries, and the text says he remembers his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. God's never going to forget his people. We can praise him for that. When we ponder the object of worship, it's not only his character, but his works. Here in verse number 3, it tells us that the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth, Do you ever take time to just ponder God's creation? I got here a little early. I just drove into a neighborhood back here to review and pray a little bit. And just one neighborhood street, there was so much green, so many different kinds of trees on one neighborhood street. That reflects our creator God. I was reading, there's a new telescope, you might have heard of this, it's called the James Webb Telescope. Maybe you've seen that or heard of that. It apparently can see even more than the Hubble Telescope. And I saw an article where recently this James Webb Space Telescope, apparently Saturn has at least 145 moons, and on one of those moons it found a giant cloud over the largest sea on one of those moons. It's just like one tiny part There are galaxies, likely, that we have yet to see. And this is what our God has made. Praise the maker of heaven and earth. Worship God and his creative power. One poet from the 19th century puts it like this, talking about the variety of God's creation. Whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, With swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim, he fathers forth his beauty as past change. Praise him. One simple way to think about worship is ascribing glory to God. But that means we have to stop and stare and ponder and marvel and praise the Lord. True worship begins with the object of worship. Second, the people of worship. Verse number one speaks of the servants of the Lord. Who are these servants of the Lord? Well, there's a sense in which every person is made in God's image, and every person should be giving their glad and faithful service to the Lord. But that's not what we find. This psalm speaks of willing servants of the Lord, not just everyone who's ever been created. I think, though, if we look carefully at this psalm, it is not all the people of God who are in view here in the original context of Psalm 134. There's a specific group of servants. Look at how they're described and what they do. They stand by night in the house of the Lord. They lift up their hands 
in the holy place. Remember, these psalms were sung by the people as they ascended toward Jerusalem, towards the one temple, the one holy place. There was not a temple in every corner or a holy place in every room. So there's, there's one place they're coming to, different festivals of worship, and there's a special group of people that are engaged in regular worship in the temple. So even when the people would come for those special festivals, it, it wasn't just kind of an open, open to the public, right? So the average Israelite didn't show up in Jerusalem and come and say, wow, you know, Father Aaron, so great to see you. I, I really need some one-on-one time with God. I'm going to go into the holy place. Do I need to, is there a book I should sign in, something like that? No, this is a sacred place where it was the priest who could go into the holy place and even the very most holy place. This is not just for the average person. So when this psalm speaks of those ministering in the house of the Lord and lifting up their hands in the sanctuary, it's most likely speaking of the priests in Israel. There's another confirmation of that in verse 3. The way verse 3 begins, may the Lord bless you from Zion. Listen to Numbers chapter 6. God says, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The blessing here in Psalm 134 appears to be a condensed form of the priestly blessing. The blessing that God gave for the priest to speak to and for the people of Israel. So if the people of worship here, these servants of the Lord, if it's the priests of Israel, what does that mean for us? Uh, we're, not, we're not engaged in the priesthood in the same way that they were in the old covenant. When we transition to the new covenant, we find some differences. There's no longer animal sacrifices. There's not this one great centralized place of worship. But listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And he's speaking there of all believers. He says, you're all a priesthood. You don't have to wait or go through those human mediators in the same way. In and through Jesus Christ, we are priests of the Lord. We're not all professional clergy in that sense, but we're all able to call ourselves servants of the Lord who can engage in worship. Now, there's an important question at this point. I said that these in Psalm 134 were willing servants of the Lord. They weren't being coerced or forced to serve. You that are here listening today, are you a willing servant of the Lord? Not just when the survey comes and it asks for your religion, you think, well, I'm not an atheist, I'm not really a Muslim, I, yeah, Christian, I guess. No, have you willingly submitted yourself to Yahweh? 
Have you embraced Jesus Christ in his death on the cross in place of sinners? Have you received the gift of his righteousness? If you have, then you're a servant of the Lord. And your worship is well-pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. The object of worship, Yahweh, the Lord, the people of worship today, all true servants of the Lord. Number three, the time of worship. Verse 1 says that these servants minister by night in the house of the Lord. It's a rather interesting description, isn't it? That it, was, it would highlight that they minister by night. But what is this getting at? I don't know your church well, so I don't know if your church is like my church, but in my church, there are actually some people, probably not the majority, but definitely some people, they would rather our worship service be at 10.30 p.m. than 10.30 a.m. They're, they're night owls. Is that what this psalm is talking about? Maybe there's a special Christmas Eve midnight worship service? Again, remember that it's speaking of the priests whose regular vocation it is to be serving in the temple. And not just occasionally throughout the year, but regularly. These priests often took shifts around the clock. Leviticus 8, verse 33. And this is Moses speaking to Aaron and his sons, the priests. You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. And then he goes on. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged. First Chronicles 9.33. Now these, the singers... The heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites were in the chambers of the temple, free from other service, for they were on duty day and night. But what exactly did it look like to have priestly singers on duty day and night? How did they rotate? What did that sound like? I'm not sure. But the point here is that worship should never stop. God desires perpetual worship. It's wonderful to have a personal quiet time for 10 minutes or 30 minutes, whatever in the morning. But in the broadest, biggest sense, worship should never stop. It should be going day and night. Now we're humans. We have to sleep. That's why there had to be many priests involved, not just one. But is the contour of our heart so in love with the Lord that we're just always ready to be engaged with him, praying without ceasing, offering up prayers and, and blessings to the Lord at morning when we wake and the evening when we lie down and all other times. Romans 12.1 says that in view of God's mercy, we in the new covenant present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Not just occasional animal sacrifices, and those are finished and completed now that Christ has offered up that final sacrifice for sin, but we're continually offering up our lives to the Lord. That's our reasonable service of worship, Romans tells us. So are we engaged all the time in worship? 
Yes, there's a sense in that when we come on Sunday with God's people, that's a, a heightened time of focus and attention. That's the, the glorious point of our week. But if our view of worship and the time of worship is limited or confined so that it's really only that one hour or two hours on Sunday morning when I come, if that's, if that's your worship clock, then your worship clock, if it's limited to that, is out of sync with God's worship clock. These priests were serving throughout the night, even when others slept, worship was being offered up to the Lord. Fourth, the place of worship. Again, looking at verse number one, it says, their servants minister in the house of the Lord. And then verse two refers to the holy place, or some of your translations might call it the sanctuary. So this psalm is speaking of the one holy place, the one sanctuary in Israel's life, the center of their corporate worship together. I love that from this morning, that reminder, when we sing, we're singing these great we's because we're doing it together. So there's a a heightened sense when we come together But in the Old Covenant, there was a a geographical center in Jerusalem. What do we find regarding the place of worship in our own place in redemptive history? Well, we read earlier, I think we heard, but I'll read again from John chapter 4. Jesus is speaking to this woman, and they're talking about the place of worship. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Again, the object is so crucially important. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. We don't have to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to engage in worship. There's there's great freedom. We worship in spirit and in truth wherever we are. Thank the Lord for that kindness. Thank the Lord for the access that we have in and through Jesus Christ. So we worship in the broadest sense, the places anywhere we go because we have the Spirit of God. And then there's another sense in which when we gather with his people, wherever that happens to be, there is heightened worship. So I'm bringing together both individual and corporate, and 1 Corinthians uses the language of temple. If we're talking in Psalm 134 about the temple, the holy place, the sanctuary, in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses that imagery of the temple, and he applies it to individual believers. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When you go to the Jersey Shore or go to the city or go to someone's house. And he also speaks of the temple when they come together. You all, Corinthian church, you collectively are the temple of the living God. So so the place of worship is anywhere we go and then when we gather. So it is a sacred thing that we're doing here today. It's not because... uh, this room somehow is, is, is holy in and of itself. If you're driving by 
And you guys have a better sense of this since this is uh, connected to a, a complex. There's other things going on in here, I'm assuming, throughout the week. When you go by, you don't need to stop and pause and you know, salute the holy place. There's nobody there. It's not a worship place 24-7. But when you see that sign that says, worship service, 10.30 a.m., there's, there's the key. There's the exciting thing. I want to be where God's people are. I want to be where the presence of the Lord is. I want to be in that space where the gathering of the saints is. Object of worship, people of worship, time of worship, place of worship. And then final point for today, the expectation of worship. Verse number three again. May the Lord bless you from Zion. We worship with the expectation of God's blessing. We should worship with the expectation of God's blessing. It's not a presumption. It's a petition that's offered in faith because the Lord desires to give it. This condensed form of the priestly blessing Back in Numbers, God told Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, bless the people. And they're doing that on behalf of the Lord. It's, it's God's idea to bring blessing to his people. Sometimes we're told that worship is not about what we can get from God. It's true that we can come to God with bad motives and bad requests. That's, we shouldn't do that. It's also true that we can come ready to worship, whether it's in our homes or even with God's people. We can come so focused on ourselves that we leave God on the sideline. That's that's wrong as well. But when we understand worship from God's perspective, our praising the Lord, our worshiping Him, our blessing Him, and then in worship He blesses us, Those things are not mutually exclusive. And this psalm wonderfully brings both of those elements together. The way it it begins, it begins with blessing the Lord, lifting up your hands in the holy place. So worship starts riveting our gaze on God. We want Him to be front and center. And then verse 3 brings the complimentary request Oh God, bless me. We want to be filled and transformed and changed. And that glorifies God because God is the one doing the work. Psalm 116, 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. We've got a cup of salvation. The Lord is the one who fills it. So we say, Lord, fill it up. You're my Savior. I, I come by your grace. It's you that I need. So, so help me. I, I need you. I, I want your blessing. We should be like Jacob in a sense that we cry out, Lord, bless me. Bless me indeed. We, we shouldn't be afraid to ask for God's blessing. The psalmist is not afraid for that. Think, what's the alternative? How was the Sunday service today? Well, I left even more discouraged than when I went in. Oh, then God was definitely glorified. That's no, that, that, that doesn't make sense, right? We're not, we're not 
looking to be unaffected when we come here. We're looking to be transformed. We're looking to enjoy the living God. So when we speak of God's blessing, we should ask for it and mean it, not just in a rote way. Lord, bless the missionaries. Uh, bless those who are in the hospital. Bless the preacher. No, think about what we're saying and asking for, but we should crave the Lord's blessing. Part of the challenge for us is we sometimes hear or see maybe preachers on TV, and they use that language of seeking God's blessing. They use it in an unhelpful way. That They almost give us the impression that if we just ask for God's blessing materially, we'll get it. We'll get that raise. We'll get that great home we're looking for. We'll get that freedom from cancer. We'll get so we have to think biblically about the kinds of blessings the Lord wants for his people. He may give us those things, but God's not a genie in a bottle that just exists to make our lives better in the here and now. But don't let a wrong view of God's blessing and a sort of self-seeking, earthly-minded narrow focus on a certain kind of blessing. Don't let that wrong unpacking of blessing keep us from seeing what Scripture says here. He's our Father. He's not stingy. What father doesn't love to give good gifts to his children? Ask and you will receive that your joy might be full. We read that wonderful passage from Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. These are first and foremost spiritual blessings. Doesn't mean they're not real. They're even more important than a new car or, or a new job. We've been adopted into the family of God, chosen in Christ. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment of what's to come. That's amazing. Those are the blessings we need. We need more of the Spirit's work in our lives to sanctify us and shape us in the truth. We need, as Ephesians goes on to pray, we need our eyes opened that we might know the hope of His calling. So come with an expectation. Come saying, Lord, I want to draw near to You. You, please, draw near to me. I need Your presence. I want to come back as we're drawing towards a close. We talked earlier about the importance of being willing servants who have received and embraced Jesus Christ. Because without Him and His work, our worship, true worship, is not possible unless it comes through Him. And all of these aspects of worship we've talked about today, they all find a measure of resolution and illumination as we think of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Think about the object of worship. We know God because He reveals Himself to us. Worship begins with God's revelation. We can't just make up the object. We take what He gives us. But if we've seen Jesus Christ, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. He came full of grace and truth, and he and the Father are one. He came to reveal the Lord. The only reason that we can be called a royal priesthood, 
that we can be people of worship is because we are united by faith to Jesus Christ, who is God's great high priest. Our guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice besides him. What about the time of worship? Luke 6, verse 12 tells us, In these days, Christ went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Here is this man of perpetual worship. Now, he was truly human. He, he slept. But he is the great one who always has his people on his heart. Luke tells us week by week he went to the synagogue as his custom was. The regular rhythms of worship were all the time in the life of Christ. And think about the resurrected and assaulted, the resurrected and exalted Lord right now at God's right hand. Did those old covenant priests probably get tired? Did their minds wander? They did. But Hebrews says he ever lives to intercede for us. He's always offering up that perpetual prayer, and he's heard of his Father. The place of worship, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, worship in spirit and in truth, but how could we receive such an exalted designation as temples of the living God? It's a remarkable thing that you and I could be called temples, that this church, Maranatha Grace, could be a kind of temple of the living God. It's because we're living stones stacked on the cornerstone, the foundation, Jesus Christ. And because we are built on him, we become a holy temple to the Lord. When we think of the expectation of worship, we read here in this psalm a beautiful picture of priests lifting their hands and, and blessing the people. The Gospel of Luke tells us this about our great high priest, Jesus Christ. This is towards the end of the Gospel, actually. Jesus had led his disciples to the vicinity of Bethany, where he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then Luke tells us they worshipped him. The blessing of the Lord, the worship of his people. We see Psalm 134 enacted in the life of Christ and even the way that he leaves his followers with his blessing and then they worship. They receive and they're expectantly waiting. The book of Acts tells us for power from on high, for the work of the Holy Spirit among them. They're eager to maintain those prayers. True worship begins with recognizing and receiving all that Christ freely gives to us. We're blessed people because we have a blessed Savior. It's of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, including our worship. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray, and we all pray today, that our hearts would be drawn continually to the Savior. More love to you, O oh Christ. More love to you. This is the earnest prayer of our souls. 
we thank you that you're the God who watches over your people, that you providentially govern and rule the world, you keep the earth spinning, and even more, the apple of your eye, your covenant ones, those that belong to the Son, you will keep us through faith to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Guard our hearts and minds, Lord, and give us the rest of worship today. Give us the satisfaction, delight that we can ascribe glory to you and do that gladly from our souls because we've tasted and seen that you're good. So that in all of these ways, we would want to be those who are consumed in the best sense with worship because we're consumed with you, the great object, the true and living God, that we're in love with the Son, that the love of the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. And even as we fellowship with the saints and enjoy this table now, would this table remind us that Christ's body is still all that we need? His blood is still sufficient for us. You still desire to commune with your people, and we eagerly anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb when worship occupies the halls of eternity forever. Lord, give us excitement and anticipation that our faith might long for that day, and even now we say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray these things in Jesus' name.